By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you, went away. I beg that you, when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be toward some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. For though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. The weapons we fight with are not the weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God, and we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, sir. All right. Yeah, before we get into the teaching, I just want to open in prayer uh, just to acknowledge the moment that we're in as not just a church, but as uh, most of us are probably Americans. If not, we're Westerners, but we're part of the global body of Christ right now. And I just want to acknowledge there's a lot on our minds. Um, It's heavy. This weekend, 20 years ago, many of us remember where we were on 9-11. And, uh, and now with everything happening in Afghanistan, plus political tension and still dealing with waves, different dimensions of the pandemic and the political fallout from that, I just want to acknowledge the room. There's heaviness. And if we could, just pray. Just ask the Holy Spirit to come, just right where you're seated for like 20 seconds. Acknowledge the healer is in the room. Just take a deep breath. Come, Holy Spirit. Yeah. Holy Spirit, would you reveal Jesus to us? We don't deny the grief, personal grief, national grief, global. We don't deny it. We want to grieve well in a way that honors you and honors those who sacrifice out of love for the sake of others. Many of us know those who are suffering or who have fallen in battle or through disaster and we just weep with those who weep right now. And if you're here and you're weeping, we weep with you. Yeah, Holy Spirit, would you come alleviate the pieces of heaviness we're not meant to carry? In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. We are in a series called Future Church. For those of you that are new, welcome. Um, we are doing this as a family of three churches in San Diego. So Light Church up in Encinitas and Neighbors Church here in Uptown. We're doing it together, the same 10-week series in unity, as if to say this is the kind of community we believe Jesus is calling the church to become. 
And it's bigger than any one church or any one like lead pastor's vision. And, and this series really began through years of prayer with myself and several friends. We get together once a year. And Dave Lomas, who spoke here last July, he's one of those friends. And John Mark Comer, who will be here in two weeks, he's another one. And, and Dave and John Mark, they did a version of this series for their two churches in unity earlier this year. And, and so we're doing it here. We're doing it here in San Diego. And, and specifically today, we're talking about this. Being a community of orthodoxy, if you have that slide, a community of orthodoxy in a culture of ideological idolatry. <laughs> so these, these titles are a mouthful, but this is important. So to set the table, what is ideological idolatry? Why are we talking? I know you didn't come to church. I hope he talks about ideological idolatry and how orthodoxy is the antidote for it. Um, but I want to share some images with you that from my understanding of culture, these images they're not meant to, you know, inflame or make anyone upset, although they'll be intense. Uh, and these images demonstrate some of the ideologies that are at work in our current moment on both the right and the left of the spectrum. They might trigger strong emotions, but, but please stay engaged. Again, my goal is not to offend, but to help us think intentionally about how our ideas become idolatry when they become ideologies and we hijack Jesus to try to support our side. That's what, that's what we're tempted to do all over the place. So for starters, some images of the Capitol riots from this year, just last January. So notice the guy praying at the cross. Next picture. There's a man in all black carrying a holy Bible, very proudly there. And then uh, pick three. There's Jesus is my savior, we know that flag. Jesus is my savior, Trump is my president. In the same crowd of people that just moments later beat a police officer to death with a flagpole and hunted our former vice president in the halls of Capitol Hill, where the peaceful transition of power was upset for the first time in American history. So how are we supposed to process these things? Followers of Jesus, how do we process the use of Christian images amidst violent acts so blatantly unchristian. This isn't the first time we've heard of the Crusades, crosses and swords. So how, how are you feeling right now? What are your emotions that are rising? Anger at the images, maybe you're angry at me. Like maybe you're just tired of talking about this. Like I didn't come to church for this right now. I came to be less anxious, not more. Thanks, Evan. Um, for some of us, this might make us feel like, man, if that's what being a Christian looks like, peace out, I'm gone, I'm good, I don't need it, maybe. And all of those feelings are valid, they come from valid places, I feel them as a pastor myself. Paul, Peter rather, writes against those who quote, bring the way of truth into disrepute. As hundreds of pastors said in a signed statement on the Capitol riots, quote, there is a version of American nationalism that's trying to camouflage itself as Christianity, and it is a heretical version of our faith. But the same could also be said of the left. Let's take a look at a few more images. Notice the cross inside the heart, trying to make a Christian argument for killing the unborn which is arguably not just the greatest genocide of our time, but of any time. 
And look at these pictures. A common sight in San Diego, a church flying a pride flag. And then the next picture, there's, there's Jesus wearing one. Um, or, or the next picture, the recent trend of, you have the next picture? Do you have it? The clerical collar? Oh, you don't have that one. He's loading it maybe. Well, there's a picture of a priest with a clerical collar that's actually a rainbow instead of white. I don't know if you've seen that. That's a recent trend. What's the clerical collar represent in history? The white collar is a symbol of holiness. And if you're Roman Catholic, you know it's a symbol not just of holiness. There it is. But when it's white, it's a symbol of of celibacy, right? It's the priest's choice to give up sex and marriage and essentially say, I'm not my own, this body belongs to God. So how, how do we think of that? When a historic Christian symbol crosses Bibles, even priestly vestments are hijacked and redeployed to mean something very different. How do we think of that? How do we receive it? How do we process it? What, well, what if we flip the pastor's statement around? They talked about the Capitol riots and the right. What if we flipped it around? I think we could and say there is a version of American progressivism that is trying to camouflage itself as Christianity and it is a heretical version of our faith. Okay, so check in, heavy intro. You guys doing okay? Still with me? We're all feeling, wherever you are on the map, we're all feeling it at once right now from from those pictures. Um, And again, my goal is not to just make everybody mad, today's teaching is not actually about politics or sex. Politics is next week. <laughs> uh, Tanika Wyatt is going to be preaching all about being a community of hospitality in a culture of political polarization. And then the sex teaching isn't until October, so we got time. Um, today I want to make one simple point. We live in an age of ideology on both the left and the right. And you live in San Diego. If you're visiting, welcome to San Diego. Uh, As San Diegans, we know this city's not just ethnically diverse, but it's also ideologically diverse. It's not like these echo chamber cities, like, you know, Portland, super liberal, where everybody believes the same thing in town, and you go outside into the forest and everybody's conservative or whatever. Uh, in, 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 In San Diego, it's a mix, right? There's an ideological tapestry here, diversity is everywhere. It's an intersection of super progressive universities and urban areas, plus tons of immigration, which brings different values. And then military movement coming into town, which brings values from all over the country, plus generations of wealth in certain pockets and poverty in others. And you mix it all together in the best weather in the world with a taco in one hand and a Corona on the other, and it's quite a party. An ideological party, everybody just wants to cover it over with fun. Even in this church, we have some who lean right and others who lean more to the left and everywhere in between and beyond. It's actually one of the things I love most about this church. We are clearly, it's obvious, we're united by something higher than these ideologies. We're united namely by the eternal kingdom of the crucified risen lamb, Jesus. And and we love each other's presence despite the ideological diversity. But even though we're here and we're together, we feel the pull. We feel the gravity of these ideas. And, And we often don't know how to make sense of pictures like the ones we just saw. Or painful conversations in the workplace. 
or in your college classroom, or most tragically, around your family table. Today, I wanna talk about what the ideologies on both sides have in common. Ideologies are essentially marked by this one thing. They take a good thing and make it the ultimate thing. That's what an ideology does. A great idea. They all start with great ideas. Equality, justice, personal freedoms, even a nation state, the idea of borders, even that idea. They're all good. They're all good things. But when they become the ultimate thing, when we start to treat them like gods, pledging our allegiance to them, putting our faith in them, which is a synonym for allegiance, the result is disaster. Why? Because the only one who deserves to be treated like God is God. The common thread in every ideology, they put humans and our moral reasoning and our personal freedom at the center instead of putting God and his values and his loving authority at the center, regardless of what I think. Ideology takes a good thing and makes it ultimate. This is how also theologians define idolatry. Taking a good thing, making it the thing you worship. Could it be that ideology is the idolatry of our generation? Think about the different ideologies, capitalism, socialism, you name it. Right, left, modern, post. Think about what do they all have in common? They all have a gospel story, a right way to think about humans and our problem, how to solve it, right? They all, they all have their priests, every idea, the Republicans, Democrats, everything, they have their voices that lay down the law. They, they also, they celebrate their own conversion stories. You know, when someone used to be on the one side and then they turn to the other for these reasons, those are celebrated, suddenly they're famous. They have their own sacred texts. No, don't read that media, read this one. They have excommunication even with cancel culture. Hey, they even have their own eschatologies. The vision of where the world is headed, where this is all going. They have their own end times, right? So ideologies, they start from this okay idea like personal freedom or social welfare, but they end up basically functioning as new secular religions by offering people a fragile sense of identity. This is who I am and a tribalist sense of belonging. Okay, so what makes it all the more confusing is these are anti-Christian things, but many of them draw on Christian symbols like crosses and Bibles and Jesus' name, as we saw in the pictures, right? Last December, I read this really great article entitled The Sad Irony of Celebrity Pastors by Ben Sixsmith. Um, he's not a Christian, Sixsmith, not a religious person, uh, but he wrote this article after the fall of a very famous pastor last year. And the author, he observes a trend that he calls with a twist of Christianity, it's this trend. And, and here's, here's the part of the article I want us to read. He says, there's mainstream culture, celebrities, fashion, music, modest political activism, and a message of self-love, but with a twist of Christianity. Most people stick just with mainstream culture because they can have all those things and premarital sex. <laughs> 
We can see the, quote, with the twist of Christianity trend elsewhere. Jerry Falwell was representative of the right wing, business-oriented evangelicals who offer capitalist self-enrichment and hubristic jingoism. I had to look that word up. It means extreme patriotism. Um, with a twist of Christianity. Then there are progressive Christians who promote the usual left-wing causes also with a twist of Christianity. And then finally, while different in beliefs, such people share patterns of thought. The former believe secular individualists mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with money, while the latter think that secular progressives mysteriously share God's wishes for what should be done with bodies. So if Christianity is such an inessential add-on, why become a Christian? I am not religious, so it's not my place to dictate to Christians what they should and should not believe. Still, if someone has a faith worth following, I feel that their beliefs should make me feel uncomfortable for not doing so. If they, speaking of these Christians with a twist of Christianity that really are ideologies, if they share 90% of my lifestyle and values, there's nothing especially inspiring about them. Instead of making me wanna become more like them, it looks very much as if they wanna become more like me. So Ben Sixsmith, a non-Christian journalist, he's calling us out, pointing to an ancient temptation the temptation to mix the way of Jesus with what the New Testament calls the way of the world, modern translation ideology. This temptation goes back to the earliest parts of the Bible. The ancient Jews, they weren't tempted to become atheists. They were tempted to worship other gods entirely. It wasn't no gods, it was other gods. Remember, when the Israelites built a golden calf, what did they call it? Let's have a party for Yahweh. And they were all in with their gold. They bought into this ideology entirely and called it Yahweh. And this is still going on thousands of years later. The name Jesus is being hijacked by ideologies on the right and the left and everything in between, which are all rival religions. The temptation for most of us today, just like ancient Israel, here's our temptation is to hold on to a false religion that is a mix of Jesus and Sabbath and contemplative prayer and progressive sex ethics based on just consent wherever you want and, and then I'll oh, give a little money your way to the poor, boom. How do we follow Jesus in this age of ideology? Second Corinthians 10, which Angel read for us, points the way forward. Second Corinthians, in context, Paul is writing to a church a lot like ours because it's in a similar city to San Diego. Corinth was progressive, little to zero sexual boundaries, spiritually promiscuous, not just sexually, but they'd have other gods and they'd pledge allegiance to Rome here and this ideology there and a cocktail of options all over the place. And Paul's dealing with this group of false prophets, meaning leaders in the church who say, I'm a Christian, but in reality they're, quote, false apostles, deceitful workers masquerading as apostles of Christ and no wonder, for Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It's not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. So this is who Paul's dealing with. He's not messing around. So let's work through the text we read at the beginning, line by line, starting at verse one. Paul says this. By the humility and gentleness of Christ, I appeal to you. 
Can you feel Paul's tone? He's totally against their ideologies, but he's coming in humility and gentleness. He's not coercive, he's not controlling, he's appealing in humility. Read on, he says, I, Paul, who am timid when face to face with you, but bold toward you, went away. Apparently he was not very impressive in person, but in writing, he was a beast. Verse two, I beg you that when I come, I may not have to be as bold as I expect to be towards some people who think that we live by the standards of this world. So there were people in this church, just like there, were, there are probably here in every church, who think, actually, that we live according to the standards of the world. And that word, the world, is a, is a technical phrase in the New Testament used by Jesus, picked up by the authors of the New Testament. The word, the world, he's not saying planet Earth is all bad. He's, he's specifically talking about cultural practices pushed by Satan against God in the atmosphere of our city. Uh, Dr. Gary Bashir said it this way, the world is Satan's domain where his authority and values reign. Though his deception makes it hard to realize, if you are of the world, then all seems right. And as we've seen, there's a left version of the world and there's a right version of the world. But no matter which side we gravitate toward, we're all feeling the pull, it's the same place, it's the world. And we have to resist this pull if we're to live into discipleship to Jesus. And Paul continues, verse three, for though we live in the world, meaning can't leave San Diego, we can't stop hearing what San Diego values, though we live in the world, we do not wage war as the world does. So while we're here in San Diego, or wherever you live, Dominican Republic over here, uh, while we live in the world, we also follow a rabbi who taught nonviolence and enemy love, who gives up his life rather than takes life or defends his own rights at the expense of others. So as his followers, we never resort to violence or even contempt or moral high ground or trolling on Facebook. We don't wage war as the world does. Verse four, how do we wage war? The weapons we fight with are not weapons of the world. On the contrary, they have divine power. Meaning we don't fight people with weapons. Whether those weapons are physical or intellectual reasoning, instead, we fight ideologies with the power of the gospel. That's our fight. The, the gospel, the story of Jesus. Jesus coming to rescue you, all his people, through his life and death and resurrection. That message is our weapon. And we use this weapon of the gospel, quote, to demolish strongholds. That's our mission. That word demolish can actually be translated deconstruct. More on that at the end. Strongholds, you know what strongholds are. They're just what it sounds like. Military fortifications. We know about that in San Diego, right? There's giant floating strongholds like 300 yards from me and you in the water right now. Um, Paul is saying there are actual fortifications of Satan positioned throughout our culture and in the church and even within our own inner world. What starts as a foothold of Satan may be a lie or a habit 
or that bitterness. It often grows into a stronghold of evil that you can't take out without divine power. In verse five, Paul defines strongholds as two things. We demolish arguments and every pretension that sets itself up against the knowledge of God. So arguments, what are those? Like thought patterns? And quote, every pretension, literally every high thing. So Paul's, he defines these demonic strongholds as thought patterns that end up as exalted things. In other words, what, ideologies. For Paul, these, our ideologies are animated by demonic power to enslave humans, while at the same time deceive humans into thinking we're free while we're actually being destroyed. This is why Paul finishes by saying, and so we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. That is our task. Church, this is our task. If we've ever felt a need for this task, we have in the last year. If we've ever felt the impetus that this is an essential task before us, my goodness, is this the time. And for Paul, the real battle, the battle for your soul, it's won or lost in the field of your mind. The real war is not raging between the right and the left, between Biden and Trump, or Bidenism and Trumpism. The real war is between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of God. As followers of Jesus, we wage war in our mind against every opposing ideology in order to make our whole life, your body, your soul, your mind, quote, obedient to Christ. And there's a word for this. There's a word for this. It's in the title of the sermon, and this word is really old, and it's been used for a really, really long time, and it is orthodoxy. Orthodoxy simply means right belief. The right belief that leads to the right kind of life. I don't know how you feel about the word orthodoxy. How does that word make you feel? It just means a set of ideas and ethics and practices. It leads to these things that have been passed down from Jesus and the New Testament writers for 2,000 years. Wait a minute, I thought Christians disagree about a lot of stuff. Absolutely. You should see our elder meetings, they're fun. And we spar about secondary issues all the time. There are tons of secondary issues. I'd love to do a whole series on what those look like and how to deal with them in love. The scriptures are very clear on some things and unclear about other things. But there is a, a, a nucleus, there's like a center body of truth that we can humbly say, this is what followers of Jesus believe. And this is how they live out of that belief. And the word in the New Testament is simply the way with a capital W in a word, orthodoxy. In Paul's words, obedience to Christ or allegiance to Jesus as Lord. Or maybe in easier language, surrender in loving trust of the Trinity. And I wanna say without Without a shred of apology, I wanna say, Park Hill Church is an orthodox church. Many of you here might be new to Jesus or coming back to Jesus 
And lots of you are still trying to figure out what you believe is a great place to do that. And our teaching team works really hard each week to teach with nuance and humility and faithfulness. We all look at the sermon all week long together. But listen, this is not a progressive church. Nor is this a conservative church. We do not align with the right or the left. We are a Jesus church. We love Jesus. We trust his vision of the good life. We find his teachings and his life to be the most compelling vision for what it means to be human in the world. And we believe prayer is his invitation for us to enjoy life with him and we love his presence here. We love scripture because we trust Jesus when he says the scriptures are to be trusted. And we don't wanna just read the Bible and, and know it in our heads, but we wanna live out its implications in every area of our life. And we're quick to admit where we fail to do that, where we don't look like Jesus. And, 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 but we don't apologize for our love of Jesus and our allegiance to him. He's not just a, a really smart teacher or a social activist, but he is the Lord of creation. In, in other words, he's the benevolent dictator of the universe. We believe this. The, the Christ, the king who died for our sins and was raised from the dead and sits at the right hand of the Father, he rules the universe. He's one day returning to heal the world and judge the righteous and the wicked and reign forever and us with him. We believe this. This is the gospel. But I realize these kinds of statements might be hard for you to process. Here's why, I believe. Our generation is in a crisis of deconstruction. Right? I mean, all around, we hear that word. It's a buzzword. All around us, friends, family, people in our own community, people are being swept away by the ideologies of our time. So as we start to land the plane of this teaching, let me speak to deconstruction for a moment. I want to say first, there's a good kind. There's a good kind of deconstruction, and there's a bad kind. Jesus did the good kind, obviously, right? Um, you probably could have guessed that. When he, when he said to the Bible abusers of his day, quote, you've heard it said, but I say to you, Jesus was deconstructing bad interpretations of scripture to get to the heart of the scriptures. Jesus loved the scriptures. After all, what was his title? Starts with an R. Rabbi, his job was Bible teacher. He loved the scriptures. And he used the scriptures to deconstruct, to tear down culture's authority over people's lives and to remind people of his loving authority that leads to the life you really long for. Bad deconstruction does the opposite. Bad deconstruction uses cultural authority to tear down the authority of the scriptures in our lives. And this honestly, this is the kind of deconstruction I'm seeing all over the place in church today, Western millennials using the world to bring down the Bible's authority in the church. But please hear me, I wanna say also, I realize going through doubt is a painful process and it's very complex and there's tons of space for it in this church to honestly wrestle. When doubts give way to a deconstructing faith, it can be painful and confusing and there's no one size fits all experience of it. My, my dear friend, uh, Josh Butler, we had him speak here a couple years ago, if you remember. Um, he's now a pastor in Tempe, Arizona, 
And huge college town, ASU, any Arizona State folks? Zero. <laughs> That's fine. San Diego, all the way. <laughs> ASU is a really big place, I guess, giant, giant college. Tons of those kids go to his church, uh, young, young adults rather, and, and many of them deconstruct in his church. And, and in Josh's experience, he, in his words, deconstruction is a symptom. It's not, it's not the disease, it's the symptom of the underlying diagnoses. And, and he lists four underlying causes that he, that, he, that he sees as he deals with folks going through this in his church. Uh, if you could do this next slide, we're gonna go through these slides pretty quick. I'll, I'll let you know when to change them. So the first one is church hurt. Deconstruction is a symptom of that underlying cause. Spiritual abuse, power abuse, authority. Something is ha something's happened that your mind associates with the, with the power structures in a church in your past and very real church hurt has taken place. That's a reason why many people kick Christianity to the curb. Uh, but in, in Josh's opinion and mine, the answer for church hurt isn't to deconstruct. Next slide. The answer is to be healed. The answer for hurt is, is, is healing. Specifically through grief and lament in true spiritual community because deconstruction just short circuits the grief process, right? And then another reason people deconstruct uh, is poor teaching, which can also lead to church hurt. But poor teaching is different than power abuse. Poor teaching can leave you with faulty visions of God and what God wants of us. Uh, but the answer to poor teaching isn't throwing Christianity away. The answer is good teaching. You know, the next, there it is. Like, if you have bad teaching, get some good stuff, right? If you're really open, like, deconstruction closes the door to good teaching when that's exactly what you need if it's because of poor teaching. Um, and then the third diagnosis behind deconstruction is an attempt to justify sin. I know this is a hard one to admit, talk about, and call out, but it's real. If your vision of sexuality is confronted by Jesus's or your vision of wealth and, and justice is, is more informed by your culture than by Jesus, and Jesus says, hey, you're greedy, or hey, you're promiscuous. According to me, my vision for the good life is better than the way you're living. We can begin to kick Christianity out of our lives in our attempt to justify our lives. Uh, but the answer to this isn't to kick out Jesus, it's to repent, right? Instead of justifying sin, you repent. And as, as Peter says in Acts 3, repentance leads to refreshment, the good life in Christ. And then finally, uh, this one's somewhat humorous but also tragic, uh, street cred. Street cred is a reason some may deconstruct, especially if you're more of a high-profile Christian, because a really great way to get a lot of PR and a lot of people buying your books is to be a famous pastor who deconstructs. Uh, and, and this one may not apply to many in the room, but I've, I know that I have seen and felt this pull on my own life in my own doubt process in my 20s. Um, and and if, if this is at all at work, in my life, then I know the solution is not to have an Instagram public 
filtered deconstruction announcement, um, but it is to crucify my obsession with my own image. That's the solution. If I'm worried about what I'll look like. Um, so the, the next slide is, is the four symptoms, or the four underlying causes for the symptom of deconstruction. And I wanna say right away, I am not trying to label you. I'm not trying to say you fit one of these. You could fit none of them. If you're actually honestly wrestling, all of these might resonate or none of them. There's no one size fits all. I know all of these have resonated with my relationship with doubt in the past. The reality is all of us have had a hard time being Christians in the last year, right? All of us have had our faith tested. But if you're experiencing the tearing down of your faith, the doubting of what God says, if you're experiencing that, then this is my humble and hopefully gentle attempt to plead with you like Paul to return to the love of God today. And if you're here and you're, you're not doubting, at least you don't think you are, to the rest of us who are pulled on by ideologies all the time, this is my humble, hopefully gentle plea for you to quote, take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. Even if you are unaware where you are embracing and entertaining ideologies in your life. Don't let a stronghold, whether progressive or conservative, ideology or otherwise, don't let it give a foothold in your soul. And if you've been sitting here, you worship, we're gonna sing in a moment, and, and now this pretty intense teaching that starts with pictures you were not expecting to see in church, and you're sensing there might be some foothold. There might be an area of your life you're like, I don't know if God agrees with me on this or if I agree with God on this. And you're sensing that, and you're wondering, what do I do with that? What does surrender look like? Then listen, you're in the right place to ask that question. There's tons of room to ask that question. This is Paul's call. He calls us as Jesus followers to focus that deconstructionist impulse, not at the way of Jesus, but at the ideologies of the world. Engage in good deconstruction today in the name of Jesus. And maybe you're sitting here like, but what would that look like? How do I aim it at the world instead of Jesus? How do I aim my angst? How would I even do that? What would it look like? Well, here's a story from our own church. Um, I love celebrating stories like this. So let's just call her Jen, just to keep her anonymous. Um, last Easter, how many of you were gathering outside with us at the time? Yeah, we were in 1 Corinthians 15. And we were talking about resurrection. It just happened to be journeying through 1 Corinthians. We land on resurrection at Easter, which is awesome. Jesus' body rises from the dead, and one day our bodies will. I'm talking about all this. And, and the final week comes around, and these two people walk up to me and Sandy, uh, Jen and Chris. And uh, Jen is not a Christian. Chris is a Christian, a missionary, missionary kid. And they're friends. And Jen is confused by her friend, She's like, Chris believes orthodoxy. Chris believes that Jesus is the God-man, that the Bible now carries his authority, not just over the church over there, but over his body. Chris believes Jesus has authority over what he does with his body. But at the same time, Jen's like, um, this is the same religion. So, so first of all, Chris's life 
is amazing, so compelling. He is the most beautiful person. His character is so beautiful. He's so other-centered, he's so kind. Best person she knows. At the same time, his faith is the one she's assumed hates gay people and embraced slavery and endorsed the violence of the Crusades. How could that faith make Chris so amazing in my life, but all the stories about Christianity are so horrific? I don't have a category for any of this. So she's like, I'm approaching you, Pastor Evan, because you seem like you, seem like you are a reasonable person, even though you just gave three teachings on bodies rising from the ground, uh, which is basically, she said, that's science fiction. Um, but I'm compelled by Chris. I can't deny the presence of Jesus in Chris. He trusts Jesus. I don't have a category for any of this, so I wanna do a double date, you and Sandy, me and Chris, and let's talk through this orthodoxy thing. She didn't use that word, but that's what she was talking about. And so we did several coffees at Communal in North Park over the course of a month or two. And but side note, if you, how long has it been since you have sincerely like, shared Jesus coffee with people? Like put it on your calendar and talk about reasons for believing. How often? Like highly recommend. It's super, it's electrifying. Um, okay, long story short. Jen, she comes to this point where her key questions are covered. She, she can't bring herself to arrogantly dismiss billions of people for 2,000 years as dumb for believing the eyewitness accounts of Jesus. She's like, I don't know what to make of it, but they're not stupid. Um, and she can't deny Chris, the character of Jesus in Chris. And she can't deny that she wants Jesus' presence at work in her life. So she says this fascinating thing. Are you ready for this? She says, and it's a progression. I saw her mind working. She's like, number one, I, I am a person with strong values. I know what I think, but I'm assuming I will discover areas where Jesus' values will conflict with mine down the road. And that terrifies me because if I follow him, I will be losing myself, she said, which, which is scary, and I'm ready for it. When's next, when's next baptism Sunday? Like, like she assumes, I'll never forget. Normally when someone comes to faith in my upbringing as an evangelical kid, there's an altar call, come forward if you don't wanna to go to hell when you die, pray a prayer, and everybody's shouting, the band's really emotional. And, and, and then six months later, it's like, oh, I didn't know Jesus wanted that from me or whatever. Or I didn't know that's the way of Jesus. I don't know what I think anymore. No, in the moment of conversion, she's assuming there will be moments where she'll be required by Jesus to deconstruct her own values when they conflict with Jesus's. Do you know what that's called? That's called love. That's called trust. That's what happens at every wedding. There's a statement, I can't see the future. I assume it will hurt at times, but I choose to believe you have my highest good in your heart. So I trust you, only you, with my body and my mind. My friends, that is what it looks like to allow Jesus and the scriptures to tear down culture's authority over your life. Following Jesus is not just one moment, but it's that whole life of that mentality. And to believe Jesus has your highest good in view even when it doesn't make sense to you. Do you believe that? Do you believe Jesus has your highest good in view even if it doesn't make sense to you? 
This is Paul's call. Let the strongholds of Satan be torn down and exposed for what they are. Destructive patterns designed by demons to destroy you. And then step into life to the fullest. So is there a practice from Jesus that helps us with this? Yes, it's called the practice of scripture. The practice of scripture. Read it, study, meditate, discuss, pray. Repeat one verse for 10 minutes as you breathe. Memorize, whatever it takes to live into the story so that the life of Jesus lives out of you by the power of the Spirit. Jesus trusted the scriptures. I'm gonna finish with a quote from Andrew Wilson. I don't trust in Jesus. You have that last slide. He says, I don't trust in Jesus because I trust the Bible. I trust the Bible because I trust in Jesus. I love him. And I've decided to follow him. So if Jesus talks and acts as if the Bible's trustworthy, authoritative, good, and helpful and powerful, I will too. Even if some of my questions remain unanswered or my answers remain unpopular. Who's in? This is the call. Aliyah, our pastor of community, she has a community guide. If you're gonna gather in your communities this week, you will see that we're calling the whole church to base level, entry level, stretch goal practices around the Bible. What does it look like to make the, the collection of books that shaped Jesus shape you? What does that look like? Uh, we're gonna be talking about that and praying through it as a church. You guys, this is the way of the future church because it's always been the way of Jesus. So if we could, can we stand together? Let's pray. We may have questions, we may have doubts, but we're always gonna be people who live by faith in Jesus's definition of reality. So Holy Spirit, would you come Open our hearts to say yes to Jesus's definition of reality. We want Jesus's mental maps to be our mental maps of who God is and who humans are and what you've called us to do and be in the world as your family. It comes from the scriptures, so lead us through the scriptures. Church, this is why we value biblical teaching on Sunday, discussion through the scriptures all week, daily scripture reading. So Lord, guide us in this, not out of religious obligation to earn credit in heaven, but to respond in love to the God who's fully available to us, and we say yes. We praise you, Lord. Before we come to the table, we're going to Invite anyone to come forward for prayer who just wants to say, God, help. I hear this. I want more help. Your Holy Spirit is good. You are good. Shine your light into my soul. I want to know where and how you're calling me to tear down destructive ideologies in my soul in submission and faith to you. So, uh, if that's something you'd like to respond to, maybe you're here and you're thinking, I don't know why I feel just uncomfortable with this whole teaching. <laughs> it's a huge ask. And yet, it, yes, it is, but it's also 
the way to the life we long for. Jesus called it life to the fullest. So uh, we'd love to pray for you. On my right and left, up here, there's gonna be folks against the wall kinda who would love to pray that the Holy Spirit covers you, washes your mind afresh, fills you with his power to engage the scriptures, to love God well, to love people well. So feel free, uh, come forward during this song or two, and then we'll finish with communion, but we'd love to pray for you.